compressor is a piece of audio recording equipment that affects the dynamics of the signal that it is processing. Usually that means there's a threshold, and once the signal gets louder than that threshold, the compressor begins to squish the signal down just a little bit, evening out the sound. The compressor is also the thing on your window AC that kicks on extremely loudly, and if you ask me, that second kind of compressor could use a little of that first kind. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I am your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music that is super compressed, music that is not compressed at all, and usually music with just the right amount of compression. I've turned my window AC off while I record, so that compressor won't be bothering us as I answer your questions on this mailbag episode, so turn up the volume, find a comfortable place to sit, and enjoy the show. Compression is definitely one of those very important and sort of elusive concepts when it comes to recording and signal processing. It's certainly something that I have wrestled with a lot over the years, and I actually just got a Keeley compressor pedal for my electric guitar, and a compressor pedal on a guitar does the same thing as compression in the studio, though it has a kind of a more focused application. In the studio, of course, compression just sort of evens things out. It brings the lows up a little bit and squishes down the highs. Um, The vocal track that you were listening to right now, me talking, that is compressed. I also do a little bit of mastering compression on this podcast just to keep everything kind of listenable, make it sound good whether you're listening on headphones or in the car or on crappy little phone speakers or whatever. On the guitar, it has a little bit more of a specific application. It's actually usually used to add sustain to the note, which means when you hit the string and are holding your finger down on the fretboard, the note rings out a little bit longer because as it decays, the compressor kind of kicks in and raises the level and just gives you a nice longer note. That can really work well with overdrive and distortion, and it's especially useful on some single coil guitars or just guitars that have a little bit less sustain than other guitars, so I've been having fun playing around with it. It's kind of a specific pedal, and it's always nice to get a kind of a specific pedal with a very specific application, even though if you get too specific with your pedals, you run out of money. So, welcome back to the show. This is a mailbag episode. I have a whole ton of emails to get through. Of course, I definitely won't have time to get to everybody's emails, but if you've sent me a question for the show, I really appreciate it. I have a huge master document that I keep track of, some from months ago, and you never know when I'll finally manage to get around to them. So thank you so much to everyone who sent a question, and if you want to send me a question for a future episode, of course, you can send them to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I really want to get into the mailbag just to fit as many of those emails into this episode as I can, but before we do that, I just really want to thank, yet again, all the new people who have signed up to support this show on Patreon, and all the people who've been spreading the word. It's really felt awesome lately to just see people talking about Strong Songs, recommending it on Twitter, giving the show an endorsement, telling me they told their friends about it. That's so cool. It's growing. We have more people listening to the show than ever. And that just makes me very excited because it feels like, I don't know, more people are listening to music more deeply and getting something out of the show. And that's why I love doing this show. That's why it means so much to me to be able to do this, to share this with all of you. So it's really nice to hear from people who are telling their friends about it. And it is extremely, extremely cool that so many of you have signed up to support the show on Patreon. If you want to sign up to support the show, 
show on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash strong songs. And that's the only way I make money on this show. I put a lot of work into it, into each episode, as you can probably tell if you've been listening. Um, this is really one of my main projects, and I really love doing it. It is a labor of love, but it is also a lot of labor. So if you want to support me making the show, patreon.com slash strong songs. And thanks so much to my current patrons. You can find the names of half and whole note patrons in the show notes, as always. All right, here we go. Mailbag is open. Let's do it. First question comes from Melina, who writes, Why is the Unsolved Mysteries theme song so spooky? When I was young, I watched it and scared myself silly, and now that the new series is on Netflix, it still freaks me out. You have mentioned previously the chords that make you feel sad. Is there something similar happening here? Specifically, what chords give that unnerving feeling? Well, Melina, as it happens, I actually have a really strong connection to this music just because it was such a part of my childhood, too, and I do have some thoughts on it. So what you're hearing in the background here is that music from the 2020 Netflix reboot, and it really is all built around this motif. So it is in the key of C. It is very simple. This is the motif. So that's the first time through the motif, second time it's the same motif, but the final note, that G, is just taken up the octave, so it sounds like this. So that was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. I think that it's just a great little motif. It is very creepy. I think the main reason for that is that it has some dissonance. It's got that little half step in there. Uh, The notes are a G to C, then G to C sharp, and then G to C. So it's kind of bouncing between a C and a C sharp. Now we're in the key of C, and the C sharp is an unusual note because that's the flat two. That's a very dissonant note that doesn't actually exist in a C minor scale. In terms of the motif, we're going between a G and a C, which is a fourth, and a G and a C. C sharp, which is a tritone, also known as the Devil's Interval, and it's typically kind of associated with evil and darkness, or at least historically it was. It's actually a really cool sounding bit of dissonance and very important for a lot of things in modern music, but you'll still kind of hear the tritone associated with sinister things. It turns up a lot of times in kind of sinister places, so that's part of it. There's also just that half step that's repeating between the C and the C sharp. Half step is also very dissonant and kind of an uncomfortable interval, the most famous uncomfortable half step melody of all time is the Jaws theme. And you know, I mean, that's just a half step. So that just kind of makes us think of uncomfortable things because it feels so close and a little bit, you know, anxious, tense. It feels like it's going somewhere, but you're not sure where and you're not sure you want to know where. So that's my partial theoretical explanation for it. It's also just got a lot of moving sort of serpentine lines moving in counter to that melody, those string parts. They just kind of give you that serpentine, creepy feeling that also, you know, is used in a lot of horror movies. I really like the original version of this. That's the one that I grew up with, and it has more of a beat, and it reminds me more directly of John Carpenter's theme from Halloween, which is just similar structurally. It has a very simple kind of melody that's a motif that repeats over and over again. There's a similar drop that sounds, you know, just pretty close to what they did with Unsolved Mysteries. So a lot of people just associate that kind of music with a feeling of creeping dread and of fear. And as a result, I think they tapped into that really well with the Unsolved Mysteries theme. That's the original. You know, it's groovier. It's got a little bit more of a Harold Faltermeyer kind of a thing going on. And that kind of just makes it sound like a mix between a cop show and a horror movie. It's like cop horror, which is actually a pretty fair description of Unsolved Mysteries. 
And I've actually just recently watched some of the episodes from the new Netflix series, and I had this really wild experience the first time that I heard the theme music. And it's because I hadn't actually heard it since the first time that I heard it, which was probably back in like 1992, when I was about 12 years old. And I had this extremely clear memory of the music and of what my mind made of the music, but I hadn't had any real musical training aside from some piano. So it was this weird rudimentary memory of hearing all these notes, but not actually knowing what to call them, just knowing what they looked like in my mind. It was uncanny and it's actually kind of hard to explain. It happened during the bridge in particular. It just really hit me almost physically. These notes, these sort of ascending and descending figures that sound like this. I knew what was going to come next. I remembered the music, but I was actively remembering the music note to note as I heard it because I couldn't have sung it to you off the top of my head if you told me to just sing the Unsolved Mysteries theme. It was wild. I was basically having a memory of hearing this music with the ears of my childhood self filtered through the ears of my adult self, and it gave me this kind of just different perspective and a really kind of uncanny memory of what it was like to hear music in this really pure, fundamental way. They explore a lot of mysterious phenomena on Unsolved Mysteries, but our brains may hold the most mysterious phenomena of all. Our next question is a bit of a face-off as two Strong Songs listeners have been having a long-running debate about a song, and they have written in to ask me to render a verdict, which is very exciting. The debate is between Jenny and Thos, who are friends and colleagues, but they disagree about what key the song Sweet Home Alabama is in. This song is by Leonard Skinnerd, and I know this is kind of an ongoing debate because you can sort of read it each way, but Jenny believes that the song is in G major, and Thos believes very strongly that the song is in D major. Jenny writes, This has been a long-running debate between myself and a colleague about the key of this song. It's not a new question, but what really fascinates me is that people tend to hear the song in completely binary terms regarding which key it is in. One camp hears it definitively in G major, so it is based around the chords 5, 4, and 1, while others hear it in D, so it is about the chords 1, flat 7, and 4. I quite simply can't hear it as being in any other key than G, and I find it genuinely curious that people hear it differently. Now, Thos writes, I heard from my friend and colleague Jenny that she had emailed you about our long-running debate about the tonic key of Sweet Home Alabama. As she no doubt told you, she strongly hears the key in G major, using the primary chords 5-4-1. To me, the song is so clearly in D major that I cannot even hear it any other way. D to C to G is like 1 to flat 7 to 4 in D major. Now, let me break down what Jenny and Thos are talking about before I render a verdict, or at least say what I think, because I'll tell you up front that I don't really think there's a right answer to this. You can kind of describe it both ways. So both Jenny and Thos are right, though I do have a way that I hear it. So this song is built around a guitar riff that outlines the three chords of the song. Those chords are D major, C major, and G. They're really simple chords. This is a nice little guitar riff. It's a nice thing to learn. It's got that nice uh, sort of uh, bridge middle pickup going on on the um, on the strat that gives it that really twangy sound. Um, very classic guitar riff that just descends from a D major to a C major 
to a G. And the song just keeps that those three chords, like that chord progression going the whole time. So the question is, what is the tonic key of this song? Is it in G or is it in D? You could kind of read it both ways. If it's in G, the groove centers around the G chord, which is the third chord of the song, and that's like the end of the phrase. So kind of think of it like this. So it goes D to C, then it ends. And that's one, and that's the end of the phrase on that G chord. If it's in D, the phrase doesn't end on the one, it actually ends on the four, and it needs to resolve back to the D in order for the phrase to properly end. So if it's in D, it would be phrased a little more like this. So D to C to G, and then back to D to resolve. So that's how Thos hears it. He hears it in D major, and Jenny hears it in G major. So how do I hear it? Well, I gotta say, sorry Jenny, but to me, I hear this song more in D major than I hear it in G major. And again, that's not to say that Jenny is wrong. I don't think you can really be wrong here, but I do hear this phrase more as starting on the one, then going to the flat seven, and then going to the four before resolving back to the one. I know this is complicated by the fact that Leonard Skinner often ends this song on a big G chord. They kind of play from the D to the C, and then they end on a big open like G chord, but I don't think that that means that it's one. I don't think they're ending on one. I think they're ending on an unresolved chord, which is a pretty common thing for rock bands to do. If you play a chord for long enough, it feels like an ending, even if in terms of the harmony and like the way the song wants to go, it's actually unresolved. It's actually kind of cooler that way. So I do think this song wants to go back to D to me. I always hear it sort of returning to that D. And that actually, that chord progression, one to flat seven to four is also like a pretty common chord progression in rock tunes. So it's sort of fits in the in the rock harmonic galaxy to me as well. So that's where I hear it. I hear it as being in D, so sorry Jenny, but I hear it the way that Thos hears it. That said, I know a lot of people do hear it in G. I know there are a lot of arguments for both sides of it, and I think that in the end, sort of like the chord progression of Sweet Home Alabama, this question will never be fully resolved. Warren writes in after my most recent episode on Queens of the Stone Ages No One Knows to ask, on the next Q&A, could you please break down the Spanish Phrygian scale? And sure, so I made a little joke on that episode. I, I referenced the Spanish Phrygian scale, but I didn't have time to get into it because we were talking about a lot of different things on that episode and there wasn't time. But sure, I will totally break that down for anyone who is curious to know what I meant when I said that. So I've explained what modes are many times on this show. I talked a lot about the modes in the episode on Miles Davis's So What? I also talked about about modes in the Rhythm and Harmony Equals Music bonus episode that I always say people should go listen to, since that's a little bit of a rubric for everything that I talk about. But just real quick, a mode is basically when you take a scale, like a C major scale, which starts on C and ends on C, you play the same notes from that scale, but you start it on a different scale degree. So instead of starting on C, let's start on the third note, which is E. Same notes as the C major scale, it's just going to start and end on E instead of C. Now that is a mode. There's sort of a parent scale, which is the C major scale, but we started on the third degree of the scale, so that's the third mode of C major, is what that would be called. That's also got a Greek name, Phrygian, and that's the Phrygian mode. The modes of major all have these names. Ionian is the first mode, then Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, and Locrian. They're kind of cool. You can remember them in various ways. There's like mnemonic devices for remembering them. But anyways, Phrygian is the third mode. The defining sound of Phrygian is that it starts with a half 
half-step. That's also true of Locrian, but Phrygian is the one that is defined by that half-step at the very beginning. Most scales start with a whole step. Starting with a half-step is a little bit unusual, and the Phrygian is defined by that sound. The first thing you play is that flat two, it's a half-step, and then you play the minor third. So those are the first three notes of the Phrygian scale. Now, Spanish Phrygian has a major third instead of a minor third. It has a very distinct sound, and that sound is this. It's much brighter. It has all kinds of associations, and that's because it turns up in a lot of folk music, Baltic folk music, Spanish folk music. It's a really cool sound, but it's not actually derived from a mode of the major scale. There's a minor third interval in there, and that doesn't exist anywhere in the major scale. The major scale is totally made up of whole steps and half steps. So it's taken from a different scale, specifically the harmonic minor scale. Spanish Phrygian is the fifth mode of harmonic minor. You've probably heard a harmonic minor scale before, even if you didn't know what it was called. It sounds like this. Now, harmonic minor scale has a flat third, a flat sixth, and a major seventh. That's the defining sound of harmonic minor, and the distance between that flat sixth and that major seventh is the minor third that I was just talking about that doesn't exist anywhere in the major scale. Harmonic minor is not a mode of major because harmonic minor has its own shape, like it has its own rules. It's a different scale system, which means that it has its own set of modes. There are seven modes in the harmonic minor scale, just like there are seven modes in the major scale. They're kind of just two different systems that each have their own set of modes. So the modes of harmonic minor have pretty cool names. A lot of times they're just altered versions of those original Greek names. For example, like the third mode of harmonic minor sounds like this. And that's a lot like an Ionian scale, but it has a sharp five. So it's just called Ionian sharp five. Now I'm not gonna go any deeper into this because I don't wanna lose more people than I probably already have, but suffice to say, harmonic minor is its own scale system. It has its own modes. You can learn more about them online. It's very easy to find breakdowns of this stuff. And the fifth mode of harmonic minor is typically called Phrygian natural three, or Spanish Phrygian, which is a kind of more colloquial name for it because of its associations with Spanish folk music. It's a great sound, you'll hear it all over the place, and whenever you hear that sound, you will know that you're hearing Phrygian Natural 3, aka Spanish Phrygian, the fifth mode of the harmonic minor scale. Our next question comes from Seth who writes, Hello, I just discovered this Mongolian band, The Who, and they slap. It leads me to my mailbag question. How exactly does throat singing work? It doesn't seem like it should be possible for a human to produce that sound. So I'm actually fascinated by Tuvan or Mongolian throat singing, and I think it's really cool. I'm not an expert or anything, but I have heard this a lot of places. I can actually kind of make the sound myself, and I do understand, I think, how it works, at least on a mechanical level. So The Who is a modern outfit. I didn't know their music until Seth. Uh, email, but I really dig it. It's really cool. It sounds like this. They do a fair bit of the throat singing that Seth is asking about, though in that track it's more the guy is kind of singing down there in that same register. But I actually will always associate throat singing with Hun Her Tu. That's a Mongolian group that's been recording for decades and kind of has a lot of the really classic throat singing recordings. Here's a track of theirs just to give you a sense of what this style of singing really sounds like when it's isolated on its own. So now listen for the second note, it's a lot higher. You hear it? 
really cool, right? So that's one man and he's singing more than one note. He's singing two notes. You could kind of maybe even hear some other frequencies in there, but he's basically singing two notes. Now, I've talked about this before. This is called a multiphonic when you're playing two notes at the same time on any instrument. And I got into this on a Q&A episode, I believe, about that Layla Hathaway track with Snarky Puppy, where she sings some pretty incredible multiphonics. So tube and throat singers aren't the only people to sing multiphonics, but the way that they do it is actually pretty cool. Now, I'm a saxophone player, and that's what I went to school for, and actually, to learn any wind instrument, you have to learn the same concept that is being applied by a throat singer in order to isolate that higher frequency and bring that higher note out at the same time as the lower note. That is the concept of overtones. Now, overtones and harmonics are used kind of interchangeably by a lot of musicians. I'm going to just use the word overtones here, but there are overtones in just about any musical instrument that you'll hear, and that's because overtones exist in any sound. When you're hearing a low note, note, a fundamental note, you're also hearing all of the overtones, and when you're hearing a really rich sound, that's because there are a lot of overtones vibrating at the same time as the low pitch. When musicians do things with overtones, multiphonics, and harmonics, they're finding a way to isolate those overtones while sometimes leaving the lower pitch ringing. A really common example of that is guitar harmonics, where you're hitting the string but in such a way that just the higher overtone kind of comes out over the top, but you can still kind of hear the low pitch in there sometimes to depending on where you put your finger on the string and how you get the string to vibrate. On saxophone, when you play sax, if you really want to get your tone together, you need to work out your whole overtone series, which is you can play a low note, like the lowest B flat, and then without moving my fingers, I can play up the octave, then a fifth above that, then up a second octave, then a third, and then the fifth, and then the flat seventh, and I can just keep going. And I'm doing that all without moving my fingers from the lowest note. Every single key on the horn is pressed down, but because I've learned how to isolate different overtones in my sound, I can get all those higher frequencies to come out. And that's kind of the key to getting a really good tone on actually just about any instrument. Now, something you might have noticed as I went through that overtone series is that each one was a little bit closer to the one before. It started with an octave, then it went to a fifth, then it went to a fourth, and it kind of keeps getting smaller. And that's because to make each overtone, you're kind of cutting the sound wave in half. I'm kind of approximating here, and I'm not a physicist, but that's basically what's happening. So it's always going to get a little closer as you go higher up. The harmonics are going to get a little closer to one another and a little bit more loosey-goosey, too. Okay, so back to throat singing. What's going on here is throat singers are really good in their vocal fry. They've really mastered the fry register of the voice, which you'll hear used as a kind of a negative sound, but it's actually just a part of the voice, and it's a part of the voice that you can master and actually get some pretty cool sounds out of if you're careful and you go about it the right way and really learn how to use it. Now, everybody has vocal fry in their voice to some extent, and what the fry is, is it's back here. It's this place down in the very bottom of your throat that makes this sort of sound. So in your fry, your vocal folds are kind of just hitting together, and it's a very dry sound, and it's really easy to overdo it, and if you're using fry too much in your voice, and I'm sure this is common for a lot of you out there, it's been something that I've actually wrestled with myself, but if you're using fry too much in your voice, you can really wear your voice out and even do damage to it. However, I think that people treat the fry too much like it's a negative thing. You need to have some fry in your voice. It's a good sound, and it's very useful in some ways, and as these singers are demonstrating, as a throat singer will demonstrate, you can get way down 
in your fry and sing almost purely down there and get a really cool sound. It's especially useful for the bottom part of the register even as a singer. So I'm a tenor and I can sing kind of comfortably down to like a B flat or an A with a wide open sound with almost no fry in it, which sounds kind of like this. So that's just like ludicrously open. I'm practically just breathing, you know, across my vocal folds. And there's not a lot of control there. It takes a ton of air to make it work. It's not super efficient. But that's a kind of wide open sound with no fry. The fry, if I get in there, I can go way lower. Now I want to stress here, I'm not a vocal instructor or anything, and that's kind of an exercise, doing your fry and kind of coaxing it down there. You want to be very careful doing that kind of thing, it's not something you should do all the time, and I wouldn't know where to begin if I were going to start singing down there, like really figuring out how to do it, but treating that just as an exercise, a way to kind of wake up my fry, it actually helps even out the entire rest of my voice, it feels really nice, and it gives me more of a foundation for the higher notes that I usually sing up in the register where I actually place my voice more comfortably. Okay, so so let's get back to throat singing. Listen again to that Hunher 2 example and pay attention to how his voice is really like ringing out in that fry down on the bottom. And then also listen for that higher harmonic that he's isolating to get that higher second melody on top of the low fundamental. <sighs> So basically what he's doing is he's holding that low fundamental and then arcing the air across the roof of his mouth to make it also resonate on a second frequency, treating the roof of his mouth as a resonating chamber. He's also sort of pinching the note off, if you can hear. He goes from this like, uh, open to this like, mm, kind of more closed thing. And I think he's almost treating the back of his throat like a high pass filter, because if you do that, you can then use your tongue to kind of to start to kind of isolate that pitch. The reason I say that is because I can kind of do it and I'm nowhere near as good at it as someone who does it really well, but I can at least make the sound which helps me understand the mechanics of making that sound, which gives me an appreciation for how amazing it is what these singers can do. So I can't isolate melodies up there or anything, but I'm gonna just hold a low B. He's doing an F, I can't get that low, so I'm gonna hold a low B and then just sort of move that upper heart harmonic around using the roof of my mouth as a second resonating chamber for the higher frequency. See if you can hear it, it's just going to be a kind of a higher frequency moving up and down while that low C stays in place. Okay, wish me luck, here we go. Me. So obviously I'm not great at this or anything, but that's kind of the same fundamental idea. And you can hear it if you're listening on headphones. I hope you can kind of hear that upper frequency. It's the same thing that you'll do on an instrument like a didgeridoo, which largely gets its melodies out of overtones that are isolated above a held steady low note. You can do it, of course, on a saxophone like I just demonstrated. You can do it on brass instruments, on stringed instruments, basically anything that creates sound frequencies. By cutting those frequencies up, you can create overtones and you can usually isolate those overtones on top of a fundamental that's also known as a multiphonic, two notes playing at the same time, and you can even do it with the human voice.
Our next question comes from Parker, who writes, One of my favorite bands in high school, Reliant K, just released an album of live recordings they've done over the years, and I can't help but think there's something going on with the intro for their song, The One I'm Waiting For, which was originally on their album, Mm-hmm. I feel like the guitar and the drums start out playing a more cohesive rhythm and then change in a way that makes it feel like they're on different beats or in different time signatures. It feels like the drummer and the guitarist are so dang close to getting off beat with one another. So I don't know this band, Reliant K, but I went and listened to this track, and the live recording and the studio version are actually pretty close, so I am just going to use the studio version from their 2004 album, Mm Mm-hmm. And here's the intro to The One I'm Waiting For, and then I think, Parker, I can break down what's going on with the drums. So this is a pretty standard groove, and the groove that Parker is asking about comes in right here. Alright, so what is going on there? What makes the drums feel so jumpy and what makes it feel like it's kind of pulling apart? Well, it's mainly that the drummer is playing the hi-hat and the snare drum really aggressively on upbeats in a way that's definitely in the kind of rock and punk tradition and it makes the song feel like it's tearing apart a little bit. They're playing a little bit loosely too and the guitar is also playing, the lead guitar anyway, is also playing a kind of syncopated figure that sort of matches up with the drums as well. So if we take the tempo right here, the drums could be playing a pretty standard groove. Boom, boom, boom. But instead, he starts playing really aggressive 16th note upbeats, which sounds like this. It's a little bit disorienting sounding because it is not using the thump pop sizzle that we're used to with a lot of different grooves. The pop and the sizzle, the hi-hat and the snare are actually being played together. And those sounds are still there, but it's just not a standard kind of a backbeat. It's more of this upbeat centric thing that really feels kind of on edge, like it's standing on its tiptoes and falling forward, which is the vibe that they're going for. It's actually really even clearer during the verse once the vocals come in. The drums keep doing the thing, but with a closed hi-hat and the guitars change up what they're playing, but you can really hear it in the drums if you listen to that. So just listen to the drums. Like that's a very syncopated groove and it's hard to like settle into a steady groove when you're playing that kind of a beat. It's not meant to be settled. So then when they get to the chorus, they settle into a standard backbeat and it's this feeling of release, which is by design. Two, three, four. So fall back on all of your premonitions and just learn to listen. So, you know, he's changing things up. He's playing 16th notes. Booms, booms, on the snare drum. So that pop still has 16th notes in there, but it's a much more standard groove on the chorus. And that whole thing is designed to make you feel off balance during the verse and then make you feel like you've arrived when the chorus hits. Our next question is also a counting question. It comes from Jim, and it is about The Breton Kingdom from the 1977 album Before Landing by Alan Stievel, the legendary French-Breton musician. Jim writes, My question is this. What time signature is this in? I tried counting it myself, and I think it may just be alternating between 8 measures of 4-4 and then 4 measures of 7-4, but just filled with a lot of syncopation, and that gives it the impression of being something more unusual or complicated. Can you confirm that? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so first of all, this rules. Thanks for sending this in, Jim. I had never heard this music. This is Alan Stevel, or maybe Alan Stivel. Sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong. I guess it's just as likely that it's Alan Stivel. But he's a Breton musician, and yeah, this is a cool song. And actually, Jim, you've got it right. The song is in 4-4, and then it's in 7-4. I'll kind of demonstrate those two sections, but that is absolutely right on. They're doing a lot of kind of complex subdivision within those measures, but if you just count it as steady one, two, three, four, and then eventually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you'll have it. So they're just in four, four here. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And now they're in seven. Counted like this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And we're back to four. So the counting seems kind of simple, but yeah, the melody and actually the drum parts, and it's all pretty rhythmically hip and very complicated. You know, that kind of thing, which it's a good example of how you can be in 4-4 time, but still be playing really rhythmically complex music because you're subdividing 4-4 in interesting and complicated ways. So this is a really cool, this was a treat to listen to. Thanks, Jim, for sending it in, and nice job counting it. Well, it's been a pretty cool world tour on this Q&A episode. I actually didn't plan that out. It's just sort of, y'all listen to lots of interesting music from all over the world. This next one, however, is homegrown, very homegrown. It is, in fact, Don McLean's American Pie. The question comes from Tyler. I'll let him ask it. What's with the timing in the opening section of American Pie by Don McLean? I've heard that song hundreds of times and love it, but I find that I always have lost the timing after each pause. I usually want to sing the next line a little early and have to re-sync myself with Don. Is this just done in free time a bit? It almost feels like the tempo changes a couple times during this intro, but I can never quite figure out exactly how. Once the guitar comes in, it is pretty straightforward. It's just that first piano part that I struggle with. A long, long time ago I can still remember how that music used to make me smile and I knew so Tyler, you're correct. This is played in free time. I guess that's kind of what I would call it. Um, Paul Griffin is accompanying Don McLean here. Paul Griffin is playing piano. Don McLean eventually plays the acoustic guitar when the time comes in, but he is singing out of time. He's sort of loosely just singing the melody, and he and Paul are sort of feeling it together, and Paul is following him. That skill is called accompanying, and if you're that kind of a piano player, you're an accompanist. And actually, there are people who just make a living as an accompanist, because it's a whole skill, especially for piano. Players. I cried when I read about his widowed bride. Something a good accompanist will just have a sensitivity for the singer and will follow their phrasing, which makes it kind of hard to follow along if you don't have the accompanist there with you. Of course, then Don McLean comes in on the guitar and the actual tempo happens. And this is usually where everyone starts singing along and it's a lot easier to follow. 
So yeah, Don is kind of driving the melody in that beginning part, and Paul is following along on the piano, acting as an accompanist in that section, and just sort of playing along with him. The two of them, I'm sure, rehearsed it a lot, worked out the phrasing where they were going to leave some pauses, but it's also just sort of a thing that a lot of piano players will develop a sensitivity for. And like I said, accompanists get a lot of work. In New York, you know, at auditions, there'll just be people who their whole job is they're an accompanist. They come with you to your audition, and they accompany you as you sing your songs, trying out for various Broadway shows. Being an accompanist is something that most piano players learn how to do, but it is its own kind of distinct subgenre of piano playing. And if you're a well-rounded player, you're probably a good accompanist. And certainly guitar players can be accompanists too. The discipline kind of carries to any instrument that can play all of the notes and can be a solo accompaniment for a singer. And it's just something you kind of get a feel for. I'm not much of an accompanist myself, but I know a lot of piano players who are very, very good at it. And it's something that some players really pride themselves on. And it's a very cool skill because it's so supportive and collaborative. Anyway, that's what's happening at the beginning of American Pie. They're playing out of time together and feeling it together, and that's what makes that intro feel so intimate and thoughtful. It kind of gives it that nice energy that's a little bit different than the rest of the song. And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. Our next question comes from Chris, who writes, There's an instrument, and every song I hear it in, I love. It's that percussion, I assume, instrument that sounds like a couple of sticks clicking together. It sounds very 50s. If I haven't described it well enough, which I assume I haven't, it is in the chorus of The Squeaky Wheel by The Deer Hunter. Well, let's listen to the chorus of that song and see if we can figure out what instrument Chris is asking about. Well, I know what instrument that is. Here it comes. So, like I said, I sure do know what that instrument is. I bet that some of you do too. That is the castanets, another musical sound actually commonly heard in Spanish music, but also heard in a lot of 60s pop, thanks largely to the producer Phil Spector, who was very fond of the sound and used it in a lot of different recordings. The castanets are two shell-shaped or actual shells that are clacked together. They create a very well-known sound that's associated with flamenco music and other styles of music. Chris, you mentioned that it sounds like a classic American pop song to you as well, and that's largely because of the producer Phil Spector, who was very fond of the castanets and used them on a lot of tracks in the early 1960s in his heyday. One of the most famous examples is actually the one that I think the Deer Hunter are directly channeling with the chorus of this song. Check it out. This is the Ronettes' very well-known 1963 hit, Be My Baby, which was produced by Phil Spector and features the castanets in a role that you will hear loud and clear. So that groove, boom, 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 get it out, boom, 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 get it out. With the castanets up there on top, that is vintage Phil Spector, and that is uh, very similar to what the Deer Hunter is doing on the chorus of the Squeaky Wheel. So, you know, they're putting their own spin on it, but the homage is there, and it's a really cool sound to channel in the middle of this kind of song. Fun fact, Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys maestro who's God Only Knows, I did an episode about earlier in this year, was obsessed with Be My Baby. Apparently, he was just completely obsessed with the sound of that song, and with Phil Spector's production on it, it was a big influence on him, and doubtless a big influence on the sound of Pet Sounds, and thus God Only Knows. So, the Deer Hunter are in good company. 
Our next question comes from Brian, who writes, Through all my intense love and appreciation for most all music, I could never quite explain my overwhelming dislike of the band Steely Dan. Many other music lovers try to explain the complexity and many other reasons I should appreciate them, but I can't seem to shake the pain in my nerve endings that their music causes. Is there something that could make them that polarizing, or is this just a situation of varying music tastes, and is this just an extreme? I think this is an interesting question in part because I'm going to try to answer it on a fairly near future episode since I'm probably going to do a Steely Dan song on this show. I mean, they're totally strong songs. Catnip, it's like really complicated jazz harmonies and really tight arrangements and all this cool stuff that I like to talk about on this show. And I do also really like Steely Dan in general, though that wasn't always the case. I also know a lot of people who don't like Steely Dan, and I know that they're a particularly divisive band, and I think that the reason for that is the melodies combined with Donald Fagan's vocals. I think that there are people who just don't like the way that he sings, and because he's so front and center in front of these star-studded bands, you know, filled with the most incredible studio musicians, the most incredible sidemen anyone has ever hired, um, but it's always Fagan's voice front and center, and I think that some people don't like his voice for a combination of just timbral qualities. I actually think he has a pretty cool voice, but it is a pretty different voice. And I also think that because the melodies he's singing are so twisty and winding, they're not really the kinds of triumphant melodies that get stuck in your head. They're much more jazzy, and they're kind of purposefully obtuse. Like, it does feel a little bit like they're saying, look how hip we are. This is the melody we're going to write for our song. Can you get with that? It kind of feels like a dare, and I think that some people find that off-putting. Like, the first album of theirs that I actually really heard was their 2000 album, which was way later, way down the road from a lot of their big hits, um, their 2000 album, Two Against Nature, which is a really great album with great players on it, killer band, Chris Potter is on sax on that record, just killing it, Ricky Lawson is playing drums, man, it's a great record, but the first time I heard it, I definitely thought, what, what even is this? It's a song called Janie Runaway, it comes a few tracks into the record, and I mean, this is the chorus to the song. Like, the groove on that is out of control. The band is so tight. The arrangement is so interesting. Everything is so carefully placed. But it is a little bit advanced sounding, and that can be kind of, you know, alienating. You know, a melody that's it's a lot of like upper structures and weird chord tensions. I haven't transcribed this song or anything, but it's definitely a, a much more unusual melody than you would hear in your average song. And there's just a little bit of this like too cool for school, if you don't like it, go soak your head vibe that Steely Dan gives off that I actually have come to like and appreciate about them. But it's a little bit, you know, they're kind of cold. They feel a little bit distant. And I think that Fagan's vocals also kind of have that quality, so I think that's kind of one of the reasons that people find this band so off-putting, and why there are people who have this very strongly held dislike of Steely Dan, even though their music is incredible, and I actually think if you can get around that, which I did with this record, I mean, I love this album, and now I have, you know, I own a bunch of their stuff on vinyl, I love pretty much everything of theirs I've ever heard at this point, and I even like that kind of weird, off-putting, alienating vibe that they give off, just because it's so distinct, it's so theirs, and they also just 
higher grade players and the grooves are just out of control and everything is just really hip and interesting and cool. So, you know, it is not for everybody. And while all music is not for everybody, I think Steely Dan is more not for everybody than some other music. And I think there are reasons for that. I am going to dedicate a future episode of Strong Songs to Steely Dan, and hopefully that will maybe help you appreciate some of the things about them that I like. But even if it doesn't, and even if you never like Steely Dan, that's fine. There's a lot of bands out there in the world, and not everybody needs to like Steely Dan. Who makes the morning fabulous? Rescues a dreary Sunday. Who gets to spend her birthday in Spain? Possibly you. Greg writes, after listening to the last episode on Queens of the Stone Ages No One Knows, I decided to dive back into Them Crooked Vultures because I love me some Dave Grohl on drums, and it made me wonder, do you have a favorite supergroup? That's sort of a fun question. I don't generally love supergroups just because I tend to like bands because bands work together. They have a kind of established creative dynamic. Supergroups tend to be a little bit more of a free-for-all. I always think back to the days of the all-star jazz big bands, like the GRP all-star big band, where they get a whole bunch of killer solo musicians into a big band together and they record a record and it's usually a lot of fireworks a lot of great players really showing off but it doesn't have that special something that an actual group that tours and records and writes and works together has one exception to that actually is the sf jazz collective this is a san francisco uh, jazz collective put on by the sf jazz organization and man they're great that i would go see that band when it was joshua redmond miguel zinon a bunch of great players and they'd all write specific stuff for the ensemble and it was really cool it was actually really neat to see people out of their bands playing together because they kind of treated that band like it was its own different band that they were in. But outside of jazz in the world of rock, um, I'd say my answer to this question, though, is probably the New Pornographers, if they count as a supergroup. I know that several members of that group are very successful on their own. Nico Case, obviously a successful songwriter in her own right. John Collins plays bass, also plays in Destroyer. So you get this sense listening to the New Pornographers that they have a Nico Case song, and then a John Collins song, and then an A.C. Newman song. And it's a little bit of that supergroupy feel, though the distinction starts to blur a little bit when you get into modern bands where a lot of people People in a lot of good modern bands then go do solo projects or are in multiple projects, and it's kind of hard to say whether that makes it a supergroup or just a band full of successful musicians. So anyway, my answer is probably the New Pornographers, just because they're one of my favorite bands. I think they're wonderful, and uh, I love their music. So that's my answer. Next. 
Nick writes, my question is related to high school band. I have played percussion in band since fifth grade. This year, I am attempting to learn tenor sax for band because I have become very bored with the drums. Do you have any tips that you wish you had known when you started playing wind instruments? Well, first of all, I hope that things are going okay with your school and that you're figuring out a safe way to go into the school year next year, but I'm just going to treat this question kind of in a vacuum because I do have some tips for learning tenor saxophone if you're just starting out. So the most important thing I think you can do when you're starting on saxophone is build up your sound. If you're kind of coming into it late or you're just joining the band to play the horn, think of yourself as a section player, as someone who can just learn the parts on the page. You don't have to be a big jazz soloist right off the bat. Just learn to read the parts accurately and learn to play them with good sound in tune. So I would say the most important thing you can do is actually get a tuner. You want to get a little chromatic tuner. They're pretty cheap. And you put that on your music stand next to your metronome. And then every day, first thing you do when you're playing saxophone, and you have to do this every day, is you do long tones with the tuner turned on. So set the metronome to like 60 beats per minute and then do 10 beats on every note and just go chromatically up the horn, start on like a low C and go all the way up to a high D, maybe start there. So two octaves and just play 10 clicks on each note and look at the tuner and figure out whether you're sharp or whether you're flat and then try to adjust so that you're playing every note totally in tune with the needle right there in the middle in the green spot so that you are in tune. Now you're going to want to work with a teacher or some kind of someone who knows something about saxophone to get your mouthpiece in the right place because if you're sharp, you want to pull your mouthpiece out. If you're flat, you want to push your mouthpiece in. Pushing it in or pulling it out too far will actually make it a lot harder to play in tune. So you want to get it into kind of the sweet spot. You can mark your cork with a pencil if you want to remember where the good spot is. But once you've got the mouthpiece in the right place, you should be able to just adjust your embouchure in your throat to get every note in tune. And it'll start out kind of hard. You'll be really sharp on some notes. They'll sound really thin and weird and sharp. Other notes will be flat and you're like struggling to get them up where they need to be. But if you do it every day and you kind of work at it, especially if you're working with a teacher, gradually you'll get it to where you can play every single note in tune, and then you can start working on overtones like I was doing earlier in this episode. You can start really richening up your sound, and that will be the most useful thing you can bring to the band at your school. Now, intonation and long tones aren't the most fun thing in the world, and that's why a lot of people kind of neglect them when they're first starting on the instrument. But take it from me, it's the most important thing, especially if you want to keep playing the instrument, you know, onward into your life and just always be able to play saxophone. Having a good sound is the most important thing, and long tones with a tuner are the fastest route to having a good sound. Good luck! I hope you like saxophone. That's cool that you're switching. I hope you keep playing drums, too, because drums are pretty fun. And take it from me, you don't have to pick one instrument in life. You can play a whole lot of different instruments, and that's actually a pretty good way to go. Nathan writes, could major 7th chords alternately be called minor 6th chords? For example, a C major 7th chord is a C major chord with a B on top, but it's also an E minor chord with a C on the bottom, which could be inverted so that the E minor is on the bottom and the C is higher. I guess there must be some reason why this name is inappropriate, because I've never heard them referred to in that way, but what is the reason? So for starters, a minor 6th chord is not an inappropriate name. A minor 6th chord is a kind of chord, it's just what you're describing. It's 1, 3, 5, 6 uh, with a minor third. Like, that is a minor sixth chord, and you can think of a C major seventh chord as an E minor sixth chord, or an E minor chord with a flat sixth, I guess, with that C in there. You could also think of it as an E minor chord over C, if you wanted to notate it as a slash chord. Those things are all correct, and none of them are inappropriate. Harmony is all kind of relative, so if you're in the key of C and you want to call that C major seventh, you would probably call it C major seventh. You wouldn't call it E minor over C, just because the song is in the key of C. But it's all relative and you can kind of call things a lot of different things. I mean, basically what you're doing is you're just identifying some of the component parts of a chord, which is really cool, and you're correct. I mean, you could call, say, like an A dominant seventh chord, 
chord, you could also call that a C sharp diminished triad over A. So like C sharp diminished over A, that's just like a more complicated way of saying it. And obviously if you're just in a gig or something, you're like play an A7 chord, everyone will play that. You're not going to be like play a C sharp diminished over A. Everyone would look at you funny, but you're not incorrect. It's just like a less efficient way of saying it. But you're onto something here. I mean, if you're learning it on the piano and looking at it and thinking, oh, well, there's actually an E minor chord nestled there in a C major seven chord, that's correct. And that's true of a lot of different harmony. Harmony kind of stacks within itself smaller sets of notes, you know, like triads fit within larger sets of notes, like big open chords all the time. And that's kind of one of the cool things about harmony. So what you call something is just going to be relative to the key that you're in, to what you're trying to communicate, to the chords that came before and after the chord that you're talking about. But you can call things a lot of different things. The most important thing is that you just tell people the correct notes to play and get the sounds that you want. Paul writes, I just watched the new Muppet movie with Jason Siegel. When it got to Walter's whistle, I couldn't help but think of you. It's performed by the legendary Andrew Bird, and it is just crazy to listen to every time. That part that he does the little three-note accelerando and gets up so high and so fast. I've noticed you use whistling occasionally in song recreations and in your Monkey Island video. Do you have any insight into how he's able to articulate those notes so clearly and get going so fast and so high? He's got to be doing some inward breathing, right? So I do love this section in this movie. This is from The Muppets from 2011. This is indeed Andrew Bird doing the whistling. He's one of my favorite musicians, a whistler that a whistler like me can only really look up to because he's so, so very good at it. He can just do some things whistling, especially his upper register that I haven't ever learned how to do, though I really want to. Actually, if anybody listening to this knows of a whistling instructor and you can point me their way, I would totally pay for whistling lessons because I think I could learn how to do it. It's just actually sort of hard to find someone who teaches advanced whistling techniques. So Anyway, this is me using my platform to try to find a whistling instructor, but to get to Paul's question. So first, let's listen to it. This is the kind of climactic moment of the Muppets when Walter, the Muppet, takes the stage and saves the day by whistling his way to glory. It's Walter. So he starts out with a really nice tone, sounds super good, but he's not doing any of the really advanced techniques that Paul is asking about, and then he starts doing them. So yeah, some of that stuff that he can do, he goes up to like a high E flat and an F there. He's doing upper register stuff, which is like against the hard palate and the teeth, which I don't fully know how to do. But I do understand what he's doing to get those really, really fast, almost double tongues. Like it sounds a little like double tonguing on flute. And he is exhaling and then inhaling. He's doing an inward whistle really, really quickly on like a 16th note to just get that very quick bounce. So when you're whistling, you can whistle by exhaling. That's probably the most common way of whistling. But you can also whistle while inhaling. I find it a little bit harder to control. It's a kind of harsher sound, but... It's also just not something I practice that much. I'm sure I could smooth it out if I spent a little time with it. Andrew Bird, of course, is very smooth on both his exhaling and inhaling whistles, though the vast majority of his whistling is exhaling whistling. So he'll do a whole line that's exhaled. And then right there, he'll go. And just that one note 
is an inhaled note. And when you do it really quickly and smoothly, it gives it this nice little lilt. Now he's clearly spent a really long time mastering this and he's got it down to a science and it just sounds so light and effortless. It gives a beautiful and surprising sound to what he's doing and it really sounds like a bird. He's living up to his last name here. I'm assuming because birds maybe do the same thing. They do exhaling and inhaling, but a bird with a really quick trill call, it just sounds so similar to a really quickly alternating exhale, inhale whistle that I have to assume that's what he's doing at least there in the earlier part of the piece. Now Paul is asking about the real fire section of this where Walter kind of blows everybody's mind and actually blows up all the lights on the stage, he begins doing what sounds to me like either a really, really fast inhale-exhale thing or maybe something using double-tugging or his tongue. I'm not totally sure. This part is pretty freaky. Check it out. Okay, so that is pretty freaky and honestly a little bit beyond me. You can hear what Andrew is doing at the very beginning there. He's doing an exhale, two inhales, and then an exhale. And then he's worked it out to where he can do that so quickly that he begins to just release into this extremely fast undulation between them that sounds superhuman. And then he takes it up the octave and it starts going so fast that it almost sounds like they're using some sort of a studio trick. I really don't want to assume that because I think that this whole thing was recorded, that Andrew Bird recorded this, but the part at the end sounds slightly processed to me at least, like it does sound somewhat unnatural. And I think that actually maybe what I'm hearing is another small cheat, which might be a small cut right before that big glissando up to the high note. It just doesn't quite sound natural to me. Like it sounds like there's a cut from a second take with that lower note because it it jumps so quickly from the super fast undulation on the high note down to the low note. There's just something in like, I don't know that it's possible to reset your amateur to the lower note that quickly and seamlessly without using some sort of a cut or an overdub. But then again, I could totally be wrong. This is me just kind of trying to figure out what it is that I hear about that last section that just pings my ear a little bit and makes me think that is actually impossible. But like I said, it really might well be that Andrew Bird is just so good at that stuff and is able to do this sort of preternatural thing that it just sounds impossible. Regardless, it's an amazing section in the song and some truly virtuosic whistling from one of the world's great whistlers.
And that'll do it for this latest Q&A episode. Thanks so much to everybody who sent in questions and to everyone who sent in a question that I haven't gotten to. Don't worry, I'll probably get to it on a future episode. As always, you can reach me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. You can also find me on social media. My links are down there in the show notes. And thanks so much to everyone who's been spreading the word. If you know people who you think might like this show, please tell them about it. That is a great way that you can help me make this show. Of course, the other way that you can help me is to become a patron of Strong Songs. Thanks so much to all of my patrons. You are making this show possible in a very tangible, practical way, and I appreciate you so much. Find out more about how you can become a patron at patreon.com slash strong songs. This episode's outro soloist is the one and only fiddle player Luke Price, who was the last person I recorded in the before times. So stick around for Luke, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. <laughs>